Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 14. Mark chapter 1. We are so thankful for all the many blessings that God has rendered unto us. And if we just stop for a second and, and stop focusing on what we don't have <laughs> and focus on who we do have and what we have in Christ, I'm telling you everything will be all right. Amen. Everything will be all right. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 14. The book of Mark is written by a man by the name of John Mark, who was a companion and secretary of Peter. Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples. He receives his apostolic authority to, to proclaim this gospel through the apostle Peter. It is uh, said and, and is often considered that Mark was the first of the four Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament are referred to as Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was the first to be written of the four, probably written around A.D., anywhere from 55 to 60. I love the book of Mark, uh, and, and so did Matthew and Luke, the other synoptic Gospels, because apparently they, they pretty much used his Gospel as almost an outline for theirs. Uh, so Mark is an incredible gospel. Throughout the gospel, we'll see him using the words and immediately after. Uh, 41 times does he use the word immediately, which shows something about Mark's personality. Amen. He's straight to the point and often, and he also sees the story and the life of Jesus as something that is living, active, fast moving. The first eight chapters in Mark are all about the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Jesus is ministering in the Galilean area. The next eight chapters or the, the remainder of the book is about after Peter confesses Christ as, as Lord, as, as the Son of God, uh, is, is, is Jesus then ministering on his way back to Jerusalem. And the last portion of the book is about Christ setting his mind and his heart and his affections towards his cross. Amen. Mark chapter 1 verse 1 through 14, and the precious, authentic, sufficient, inerrant, incredible, life-giving word of God reads, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before you, your face, who will pro prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have blessed you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and baptized by John in the Jordan and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And while he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we just thank you, Father God, for just how amazing you are, how faithful you are. And even as we get ready to break into your word, we pray for believers all over this world, all over this community, all over this this state who is getting ready to hear your word proclaimed. I pray that you would just do a mighty work in your people's hearts, not just here at Forest, but all throughout this community, Lord, all throughout this state. We pray for those who are suffering and other parts of the world who have given their faith to you, who are meeting in caves and behind mountains and and, in dark schoolyards, Lord, and just just seeking to, to hear from you and seeking to get in your word, Father God, but who are putting their lives on the line. We pray for them this morning. We pray for those who are uh, in this, the path of Irene. I pray for those believers on this East Coast, Lord, who, are, who feel like their, their lives are being taken from them as their homes are flooding and they have to evacuate. I pray that this morning that you would speak peace into their spirit and remind them that they can overcome all things through Christ who gives them strength. And I pray for this, your people, that you will illuminate your word in their hearts, in my heart. I pray, Father God, that you would do so. I pray, Lord, that you would have your way. I know that I'm not worthy and of myself to preach this gospel. I thank you, Father God, for your son's blood and righteousness, which allows us to stand as one worthy before you. Have your way through the proclamation of your word for your name's sake. Amen. As we look at the first verse of the gospel of Mark, as we will be speaking today, meet the anticipated king, we see that Mark starts off by saying the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel. One thing I like about the first chapter of Mark is that it really has a lot of resemblance to the book of Genesis, to the book of Genesis, and we'll be fleshing that out and seeing that throughout. As we think about those words in the beginning, our minds should take us back to the book, of Genesis, as we know in the first chapter, first verse of Genesis says, in the beginning, God created, God created. And we know the narrative of of Genesis. We have come to know exactly what happens in those next three chapters after God creates his creation, declares himself king and lord of the creation. Then he creates and makes people in his image. And he gives them the joy of them being kind of vice presidents of the garden. 
vice kings of the garden. <laughs> Their responsibility is to then keep the garden and walk and stay in the presence of God and commune with God. And, and, and everything was peachy and cream. And then we read that, that Adam and Eve was tempted by Satan. They were tempted by Satan as Satan came to them and said, listen, uh, the tree in the garden that the Lord has forbidden you from, that God has forbidden you from, he has forbidden you from that tree because he knows that you will be just like him if you eat of the fruit of the garden. So we read that Adam and Eve, that they, they are lusting after the opportunity to become kings of their own world. They are lusting after the opportunity to be uh, the ones who rule the world, the ones who are just like God calling the shots. And we see this tree becomes incredibly tempting to them. And we see that Eve reaches to this tree and takes the fruit and she puts her faith and her trust in this tree's fruit that this fruit would allow them to know the difference between good and evil being just like God. And we often get on Adam and Eve and say, if I was Adam, if I was Eve. But the truth be told, we would have done at some point the same thing. And from that sin, from that time, the world has been under the, the tutelage or the control of Satan. Satan has been, as Ephesians calls him, the prince of the air, the prince of this world. And we each individually are born desiring to be our own king. Desiring to be the ones who rule, the ones who lead, the ones who makes the decisions, the ones from which everything else should revolve around as a result of the fall. So we are living in a world where Satan is prince and we are born believing that we are king. But as we look at the world and we look at what Satan has to offer, uh, we see that this world, in many ways, has, has been affected and, and appears and, and, and looks and has the results of man, a man-made kingdom. When God was king, there was no need for the police. When God was king, there was no need for, for uh, a PETA. There was no need for, for a, a Go Green campaign. There was no need for all of these different things that we see because everything was in, in harmony. Everything was good. There was no need for a funeral home. There was no, and no need for a psychiatrist or a psychologist. But the moment we become king and God gave us over to that desire... The fall occurred. It was not, and it did not necessarily, from man's perspective, have to be this way, but God has given us what we want. Brokenness comes from a man-made kingdom. As we read the Bible's meta-narrative, we see that God has a, a plan. That after creation, after the fall, that the rest of the Bible all the way up until where we're at today is all about how God plans on restoring his kingdom. 
And we know that God, in the midst of the story, has set aside a special people, a people who, who are called Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews. He has set them aside, and through their lineage, he was going to give, uh, a, a king was going to come that would right the wrong of the first Adam, that would set Israel up for blessings, that would, would cause this nation to be, to be a blessing to the other nations. Israel has not only rejected God as king throughout the narrative of the Bible, but now Israel is under the kingship of the, the Roman Empire, under the control of the Roman government. And they have been that way under the control of, of others ever since 605 B.C. or some say 722 B.C. when the Assyrians and the Babylonians came and took over the people of God. Because they denied God as their king. But as we uh, look at the gospel of Mark, we see that Mark is now about to introduce this, this great king. This great king who will restore all things. And he starts off by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the first verse, he introduces, he says, look, meet the king. Meet the king. Meet the one whom you have waited for. And he starts off by saying, in the beginning of the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, that is a huge word. And we have known that word to mean in the beginning of the good news. The gospel, as we see in Mark, is being used as he is, is writing this to Christians who are, are now familiar with that term. It is it's being used to talk about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's being used to, 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 to communicate the good news about his person and, and his work. But the gospel is not only about Jesus. As we see in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 and throughout this gospel, the gospel is, is preached by Jesus. The gospel is to be proclaimed by the one whose name is Jesus. This, this good news to Israel though, as we will read this term, good news throughout the Bible, uh, originally to his listeners meant, meant a lot more because the Messiah had not yet lived and, and died and, and, and risen again. To them, when they heard the good news, they, they thought about how God was going to fulfill his promise to them through the coming Messiah. So as Mark uses play on words uh, in the beginning of the gospel, he knows that those who are not yet committed to Christianity, that they are hearing, they are hearing a, a term that was used throughout the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah, to talk about the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9 through 11. These Jews were anticipating. They were anticipating. This king that would come and that would restore the kingdom of God. They were anticipating this king that would come and that would restore Israel. In Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9 we read the use of this term good news. It says, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might. 
and his arms rule and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. They would hear this term good use and they would think about how the prophet Isaiah talked about a day where God will take the children of Israel as his lamb, as his possession, how he would hold them in his arms and be affectionate towards them. Then we read in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, another use of the term good news. As Isaiah continues to talk about this servant, this Messiah, he says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. They are anticipating, they are waiting on this declaration of good news. They are waiting on this Messiah, this one who will correct the wrongs of the past. Then in Isaiah chapter 61, a verse that we know that Jesus quotes in the temple. Isaiah 61 verse 1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planning of the Lord that he may be glorified. Israel is anticipating. They were waiting on this one who would bring good news to the poor, to the brokenhearted, who will proclaim liberty to those who are captives, who will open up the prison doors, who would bring healing both spiritually and physically, who will restore things not just back to the glory days of Israel, but back to the garden. Mark starts off and he says, in the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus and the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew name for Jesus is, is Joshua, which means the, the, the Lord saves. Christ is the, the Greek word that is based off of the, the Hebrew word that we transliterate into to the word Messiah. It is the anointed one. Mark is, 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 is basing Jesus to his hearers right back to where he belongs, right back as the one who is fulfilling good things in the past. He is the Messiah. He is the one to whom God is going to, to use to bring salvation. But then he completely shocks his listeners. He completely shocks them. He says, not only is this Jesus the anointed one, not only is this Jesus the awaited Messiah, but this Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God? Right away, he puts Jesus in a form of divinity. He lets his, his reader know that who I am about to tell you about is not, no, he's not an average man. 
the man that I'm about to proclaim to you is a deity. He is in some way related to God. This Wednesday, we talked to, we have been going through the book of, of Daniel on Wednesdays, on Selected Wednesdays. And this past Wednesday, we were talking about Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, we read the story about a king of Babylon, a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And how Nebuchadnezzar was the strongest, most powerful king of the day and how he had a dream and his dream really bothered him. It was a recurring dream. And as a result, he called all the magicians, all the sorcerers, the enchanters, all the Chaldeans into his court. Everyone who would have a chance at interpreting this dream. He calls them before his presence. He says, I don't want you to just tell me the interpretation of my dream. But I want you to tell me my dream. And, and, and they knew right away, these, these, these sorcerers, these paid spiritual staff people, they knew right away that they were in trouble. And they tried to talk them out of it. And finally, they say these words to them. They say, listen, listen. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Said so no one can interpret this king, this, this dream, O king, Except God. But God is not in the flesh. But what's amazing about the story, about the gospel, about what we have received, and about what we believe is that God cared enough to actually dwell in the flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that, that the word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. That God did not look from a distant, uh, far away apart and just say shame on them. But he said, no, I'm going to send my son in the flesh, incarnate. Incarnate means flesh. I'm going to send him in the flesh. I'm going to place him in Mary's womb. He's going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he's going to come down to the, floor, to, to the earth to fix what we could not fix in our own strength. This is known as the hypostatic union. Theologians use this term in order to describe that when Jesus came to the earth, that he came and he was fully divine. He was fully God. He did not set aside his divine attributes. But at the same time, he was fully human. He was fully God and, and fully human. He is the, the God man. These two things don't fuse together. They don't mix together. They're completely separate. John is trying to show us right away that there is no other person like Jesus, that he is, is more than a carpenter. He's more than a philanthropist. He's more than a rabbi. He's more than a prophet. Jesus is God. He says, meet Jesus. Then in verses 2 through 8, we read, John, Mark tells us, look, Meet Jesus' forerunner. Meet Jesus' forerunner. In these verses, we're going to read about the one who we know as John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And, and why was it important that, 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 that John the Baptist came? Why is it important that Jesus had a forerunner, a person to run before him to proclaim his coming? The reason why it was important was because in ancient times, king's envoys would travel ahead of him. And they would make sure that the roads were safe and fit for the king. And before the king got to a destination, they would yell aloud and let everyone know that the king was coming. John the Baptist is, is fulfilling this, this prophecy. 
He, he is the messenger that Isaiah talked about. In verse 2, he says, as it is written in, the, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before you, who will prepare your way, who will go before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his, his paths. Make straight his paths. We see here Mark quotes Isaiah, but he actually doesn't just quote Isaiah. He, he actually quotes a Malachi as well. Malachi is the first portion. Isaiah is the second portion, but he gives credit to Isaiah because it was probably the, it was a, a, the same thought, and, and also Isaiah was the, the more known of the prophets. And he tells them that, listen, what God did through John was prophesied centuries ago by Isaiah. This, this messenger is, is John. John was an incredible messenger. John was an incredible, incredible man. John was an incredible forerunner. There is no other hype man in the history of the world like John the Baptist. P. Diddy is not the best hype man. He is not the best marketer. Kanye is not the best hype man. John the Baptist was the best hype man. John was just incredible. He knew his job was to prepare the way for Jesus. John, the Bible teaches us in Luke chapter 1, from birth was born with the Holy Spirit in his heart. The Holy Spirit filled his heart even while he was in his, his mother's womb. Only other person I know of like that is Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verse 24 through 28 Jesus is talking to the disciples and those around, and he gives John the ultimate compliment. He says that there has never been born, never been born a man like John the Baptist. He says, hey, John the Baptist is the best that they get, born of a woman. Jesus had great respect for John the Baptist. John the Baptist was, was humble and he was, he was focused. We read in John chapter 1, verse 19 through 23, he was out in the wilderness. He was preaching. Y'all folk were coming to him and, and lives were being changed. And, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they sent people to question him. They began to question him and say, who are you? He said, who are you? They said, are you the Messiah? John said, no, I'm not the Messiah. They said, are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not Elijah. Are you one of the prophets? No, I'm not one of the prophets, he said, I'm just a voice. <laughs> he quotes Isaiah. He says, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. Great thing about a voice is that a voice can be heard, but it cannot be seen. He says, I'm not to be looked at and to be admired. I'm, I'm not the one that you should be putting your attention on, but I'm the one that you should be hearing. And what you should be hearing is this, that Jesus, the, the Messiah, excuse me, is greater than I am. And he is on his way. And my job is to prepare his way. Jesus, Mark says, is the son of God. And Jesus, Mark says, is supreme, supreme, even over the, the greatest prophet of that day. John is saying, I am not him. I'm not him. What amazed me about John and John's ministry is that his whole life revolved around announcing the king, this anticipated king. 
John was born in a priestly lineage, Levite. His father was a Levite. John could have been in a temple, in a synagogue, serving the Lord, could have been comfortable and safe. But John renounces that and he moves himself into the wilderness. The wilderness. The wilderness is associated with the poor. The poor go out to the wilderness. The wilderness. The wilderness is where all the, the cults meet to have worship. The wilderness. The wilderness is where, where people who didn't fit in and people who were taken outside of the camp was taken. But, but John says, listen, I'm going to go to the wilderness because that's where the Lord has called me. He, he rejects a life of comfort. He rejects a life of, of normality. And he says, I'm going to give it all. John came before Paul. John concluded that to live is Christ and to die is gain before the Apostle Paul. John concluded that his life was as dung before Paul. He, he concluded that all that he could have and all that he would have if he just, just continued to go along with his life was worthless for the surprising knowledge of knowing the coming Messiah. John, John, John was a bad man. amazes me about John that even though he was born with the Holy Spirit full on the inside of him even though he was the talk of the town and everyone was coming out of their comfort zones to hear him preach not only did he say I, I don't deserve I'm not the Messiah but he said I don't even deserve verse 7 I don't even deserve to untie untie his Jordans Temporary version. See, a slave would would work in, in the home, and and when and when their their uh, master came or when when the the homeowner came, they were, were responsible for taking off the person's shoes and, and wiping their feet. But this job could not be done by a Jew, so the Jews normally got non-Jews to do it because it wasn't a glorious job at all. They didn't think Jews deserved to do it. John the Baptist is saying, listen. I'm not even worth, I'm not even worth being a, the slave of Jesus. Jesus is so amazing. He's so awesome. This, this Messiah that's coming is so incredible. I'm not even worth to, to, to wash his feet. And to think about how amazing Jesus is, that Jesus was the son of God, and that he washed his disciples' feet, shows us that those who are really connected to the Lord, really walking in the vein of the Lord, really anticipating the king, using them, really excited about God using them, are those who are being made to be, to be low. John gave up everything, everything to cry out in the wilderness. We see the Lord blessing his ministry in the wilderness, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So John is preparing the way of the Lord. What does that mean, preparing the way of the Lord? What was he doing? What John was doing here in the wilderness is, 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 is he was getting people's hearts ready, as I said, to, to receive Jesus. He was softening their hearts. And he was preaching a message of repentance. To repent means to turn from sin. 
to God. To return from a life that is centered on us being king. To turn from a life that is centered on us pleasing ourselves and to, to turn to God and to make up our minds to live our life, a life pleasing to him. To reject sin and accept God. He was preaching this message in the wilderness. And he was calling people to not only to, to, to confess their sins, to agree with God that they are sinners. To agree with God that they are, are missing the boat. And the Bible says that all Judea and all Jerusalem, that they came out to the wilderness to hear this type of preaching. They were thirsty for 400 years. They had not heard the voice of a prophet. For 400 years, they heard people standing in the wilderness with a, a cheap and broken message. But something about John's message captivated his audience. This picture of John in the wilderness is reminiscent. Of God calling his children out of Egypt, out of bondage from Pharaoh, out of being slaves into the wilderness to meet God at Sinai. God was doing a mighty work in Israel. He was calling his children out from the rule and the religion of the Pharisees. He was calling his people out from the normality of everyday life. He was calling them out from a life of legalism and a life of just keeping the law and thinking that they're good people because they keep certain laws. He was calling them into a relationship. He was calling them into a, a chance to really know the one true sovereign God. He was calling them to meet the Messiah. And even today, God is calling someone out of this, their bondage. God is calling you out of living life, a life that is centered on yourself. He's calling you out of worshiping yourself and, and allowing everything to revolve around you. And he's saying, reject that notion and accept my son and allow your life to revolve around him. They were broken. The Bible says that all Judea, the whole, the whole country was just Curious, they were broken, they were repenting, and, and we read in, in, in the other gospel that, that, J, that John says, listen, bear fruit with repentance. They cried out and said, well, what do we have to do? What does that mean? He says to the one who has two tunics, two coats, give to the one who doesn't have any. He says to the tax collectors, the one who is extorting money from people, stop extorting. Give them back their money and give your heart to Jesus. That's what repentance is. That's what repentance is. It's us identifying the areas of our life that fall short to God, the areas that we love and that we cling to and that we love. And it's us seeing how magnificent Christ is, seeing how wonderful he is, seeing how he is worth way more than this junk and us renouncing the junk and saying, God, help me to serve you. Help me to live for you. Help me to turn to you. Says, meet Jesus. Meet Jesus forerunner, who is a picture of what all believers one day will be. Then he says, meet the triune God. Meet the, the, tri, the triune God. We read in verse 9 In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee 
and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So John, who is seen as this, this wild man, this man who is like Elijah, he is, has poor man clothes and prophet clothes on. He is going to baptize Jesus in the Jordan. Now, we read in another gospel account that this wasn't something that John was looking forward to doing. See, John had come with a, a, a baptism of water, meaning that he was baptizing people. And, and as he was baptizing them, they were going down in the water. It was signifying them being cleansed and, and washed. But he says, listen, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who comes, he's going to baptize with the Holy Ghost, with fire. He's going to give you something that I cannot, that I cannot give you. And, and he knew that the Messiah, he knew that this, this Jesus, as he met him, he knew that, that he was above him. John says, listen, and the other gospel, he says, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not to baptize you. Jesus says, suffer to be so now. Jesus agreed to be baptized not because he was a sinner. No, he was sinless. He agreed to be baptized in order to identify with us. In order to completely obey the commands of the Lord. In order to identify with our sin, the sin that he would one day take upon his shoulders. But in verses 9 through 11, we see his baptism and we are brought to stand at all at this baptism. As in these verses, we see that there is a triune God on display. On display. Verse 10 says, and when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. We see the spirit here, which is the Holy Spirit, being represented as a dove coming from heaven. Now, what's interesting about here is it said that he descended like a dove. This word in the Greek that's here for descended is, is almost like it, it, it fluttered down. It, it fluttered down. The Holy Spirit kind of just fluttered down and came upon Jesus. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we see God declaring, he says, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, excuse me. We see the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters, hovering over God's creation. That word hovering in the Hebrew is, is, is pretty much uh, equivalent to the word that we see here for descending in the, in the Greek. It was just fluttering over the water. The same God in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, that same spirit is, is now hovering over Jesus. He is now showing John the Baptist that this is the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, we read that God says, let us make man. The word us in the Hebrew is a word uh, that's pronounced in English as, as Elohim. Let us, it's a plurality, a, a, a plural word saying that God was talking to, it was one person talking to some other people, at least one more person. God is three persons in one. This is what's known as, as the Trinity. The Trinity is a, is a, a, a concept that the Bible teaches even though the word itself does not appear in the scriptures. And the Trinity asserts that there is one God. 
and that this one God consists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of these three persons share the exact same essence and nature, though they are three distinct people. The Trinity is mysterious. John Aerosmith says that the Trinity is a mystery which your faith will embrace as revealed in the word of God, even though your reason cannot fathom it. The Trinity is a mystery which your faith, if you are in Christ, will embrace as, a, as revealed in the word, even though your reason cannot fathom it. We see Mark saying, meet this triune God. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus to give affirmation and comfort and love before John. And we read in verse 11 that a voice came from heaven and says, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. With you, I'm well pleased. So we see the father speaking and, and affirming the son. In the Old Testament, we read quite often the father affirming the son and, and loving on the son. In Psalm chapter Two, verse 7, a psalm that we read this morning. We read God saying this in what's called a, a messianic psalm, a psalm that points towards Jesus. He says, I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. God is fulfilling Old Testament scripture. Saying, today I have begotten you. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We read the same thing in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7. God asserts his sons and, and loves his son and, and lets the, the Hebrews know that, that he's in a love relationship. We read the same thing in Mark chapter 9, verse 7. As Jesus is on a mountain, it's what's called the Mount of Transfiguration, and a voice, and, and God speaks to Peter and to John and to the rest of the disciples that's there. And he says, listen, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is God, and he's a part of the Trinity. He's a part of a Godhead. Jesus is supreme, John is saying. Jesus is, is special, and God is showing this in this baptism. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 attests that Jesus is fully God. That he's not less of God because he's God's son. He says this word, these words, and I start at verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is preeminent above all things. He is the second person in this Godhead. All things were created by him, the Bible says, and all things were created for him. You remember the company FUBU, For Us, By Us? Y'all used to rock FUBU. 
It came in real quick and it left real quick. I remember I finally got my first FUBU shirt and I wore it to school about two months after it came out. And one of my friends said, man, that was so last year. This world is for Jesus, and it is by Jesus. And Jesus, this preeminent son of God, is in a relationship that is amazing. That's what Mark is showing. He's saying, look, look at this relationship that he's in. Look at, look at, look at what's happening here. The, the father is boasting on the son. The spirit is comforting the son. They are all supporting each other and pointing to each other. God is the embodiment of true love. This is a picture of true love. They are just loving on each other. And this God who is love, this God who for all eternity has been loving each other, he invites us in to this relationship. He invites us into a relationship where there is harmony. He invites us in as C.S. Lewis says to dance with him. This is a holy dance that's going on. This teaches us something about God. God did not create us because he was lonely. God did not create us because he was lacking love. God did not create us because he needed something. Psalm 52 and 7, God said, if I was hungry, I would not tell you. In other words, I don't need you. God did not create us because there was some deficiency in him. Because he needed us to, to help him to, to be more loved. We see perfect love displayed right here in this text. God created us because we need him. And without him, we will only know a selfish love that revolves around us. And we will only love people if we feel that they are useful and some need to us. He invites us into this dance. He invites us to have Relation, a relationship with this, this God, this dynamic, this active God. He, he invites us to know him. The Bible says that when we accept Christ as our Savior and God as our Father, that God accepts us into his family. And just as Jesus stood in those baptismal waters and, and heard proclaimed from heaven a voice that says, this is my beloved son, so shall you hear God proclaim to you that you are his beloved child. When we repent and turn and place our faith in Christ, we will receive the love that, that has forfeited us or, or that had not been experienced by us. We will experience that love through Jesus Christ. Many of us, we're searching for pure love, a true love. I invite you to investigate this Jesus. I invite you to dance with this Jesus. I invite you to, to accept him by faith and to be declared right by God. And every day that you wake and every day that you're down and every day that you're out, you will hear the Spirit testify to you that God, is your father and you are his child some of us we just come from broken homes broken situations 
come from broken relationships, been messed up as one person after another person, one scenario after another scenario, and we are looking to fill our hearts with, with love. We are looking for someone to love us and someone to need us and someone to, to appreciate us and someone to, to just roll out the red carpet for us, but we have been disappointed time after time as he did not come through and she did not come through and they did not come through and it did not come through. If you just step into the waters of baptism, if you allow the Lord to become your treasure, to become your king, you won't have to search anymore. You become a part of his family and he accepts you and he loves you and he says, call me father. And you can cry out to him, Abba Father, late in the midnight hour. You can cry out to him, Abba Father, when no one else is around. You can feel his comfort. And if you listen closely, you will hear him sing over you, Zephaniah says. Lord, your God is in your midst, Zephaniah says. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you with loud singing. And we see Jesus being led into the wilderness immediately by the Spirit. So we met Jesus. We met his forerunner. We met the triune God. And finally, we must meet his opposition. This is very reminiscent of Genesis once again. Genesis chapter 2, we see Adam and Eve. They're walking in the cool of the garden. They are walking with God, they are dancing with God, they are enjoying their relationships with God, and all of a sudden, Satan shows up. <laughs> There's a message in there for you. As you walk with God, as you dwell in his presence, Satan is coming. And the Bible says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Into a, a, a place where the broken is. Into a place where there's not much happening. Verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. The angels were ministering to him. Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And for 40 days Jesus is there. And as you read this you just get this demonic and, and satanic picture. He says that wild animals was out there with them. Wild animals was out there with them. And in the other narratives, we know that Jesus was tempted three ways and three times by Satan. But, but Mark is saying it was, just more, it was more than three times. Those, all those 40 days was just spiritual warfare. All those days, there was a, a demonic presence over him. And Satan was trying to get him to stumble like Adam. Satan was trying to get him to fall and to sin. He was trying to get Jesus to go after his own kingdom on earth. He suspected now that, that Jesus was the coming Messiah. And that Jesus was this king that would restore Israel. But in, in expecting this, he was thinking to himself, you know what? I got every other king, every king that Israel has ever had. I've gotten them to fall. I've gotten them to fall. From the first one, Saul, I've got, I got him out the way real quick. And then David came along. 
And I tempted him. I talked to him while he was on his rooftop. And I I, I allowed him to see a, a woman bathing. I got him to fall. I got him to take a census. And even after him, I got his son Solomon to fall. But Satan would not get this king to fall. This king does what no other king can do. This king does what Adam could not do. This king does what David could not do. This king is in the heat of the battle with Satan for 40 days hearing this serpent slither around him and this king refuses to eat the forbidden fruit because this king is focused on his task. And what is his task? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 through 18. His task, he came to earth in order that he would be our high priest, in order that he would be able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He came to earth in order that he would be a propitiation for our sins, in order that he would take God's wrath for us, in order that his blood would be splattered on a cross, and in order that our sins would be placed upon him. And in order that we would be able to look to him in faith, isn't it interesting that in the beginning, there's a tree in the garden. And that Adam and Eve, they ate of this tree in order to become kings of their life. They put their faith and trust in its fruit and it killed them. Isn't it interesting that restoration comes through us putting our faith and trust in a tree? And not just any tree, a tree where the Messiah, the tree where the God man is hanging. And you've got a choice to make just like Adam and Eve had a choice to make. But this time it is not to eat and to trust and to have faith in order to be kings of your own life like God. This time, the, the choice is, is that you will hear Jesus' words in the 14th verse. The kingdom of God is at hand. I am near. And if you put your faith and trust, if you reach out to me and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I am in desperate need that I will heal you and that my kingdom will accept you. This, this Jesus is like no other. This Jesus can do for you and me what we could not do for ourselves. This, this Jesus is worth being proclaimed in this wilderness called America. This Jesus is, is worth us standing out on the streets saying, the kingdom of God is near. This Jesus is worth us devoting our life to like John the Baptist This Jesus wants to love us and dance with us and and know us. This this Jesus can help us to overcome any temptation. This Jesus can make us new and fill us with his Holy Spirit and empower us to live a successful life in him. This Jesus is greater than David. This Jesus is greater than Solomon. This Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. This Jesus is divine. Let us pray.
Father, there's someone here today who, who desperately needs you as they are living to be king of their own life. They have reached out and they have listened to the voice of Satan tempting them to, to live as their own God. And they are comfortable in their sin. They are putting faith in humanism, faith in their ability. They believe that one day, if you exist, that they will stand before you and that you will accept them because they are a nice person. Father, I pray that you would allow them to see that Jesus, this anticipated Messiah, he came and he's like no other and only he can take away their sins. And their only chance was standing before you and being justified is if they accept him as king and leader of their life, is if they repent, is if they turn from this meaningless religion, from this pharisaical religion, this, this religion that just says, be good and keep these laws, and if they accept the one who perfectly kept these laws, help us, Father God, to be more tempted to reach for Calvary's cross, to be more tempted to look to the resurrection, than to look to ourselves. Help us to be like those in that wilderness, hearing the message preached. Help us to give our hearts and our lives to you solely, to reject comfort, to reject a life of ease, to see you as worth proclaiming. Help us to be a voice crying in the wilderness. Amen.